Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. It's over. The Premier League dream never really turned out to be a dream. It was more of a nightmare, uh, but it's over for Norwich City. And we're intent to try and look forward as much as we can. We're just going to have a, uh, a quick section at the start of the pod this week uh, to, to sort of wrap things off for the season, but then we're mainly going to turn our attentions to the future because I think we've all had enough of wallowing in this negativity for the last few weeks, haven't we? I'm Dave Freezer, joined by Connor Southwell and Paddy Davitt. You can also hear us on Future Radio 107.8 FM. Chaps, how are we doing? Uh, how? What did you make of the uh, the Man City game, Pat? If I if I come to you first, I mean, Kevin De Bruyne, what a player! Yeah, yeah he's yeah, he's a special special talent. I felt sorry for Marco Steepman. If you if you <laughs> immediately you say Kevin De Bruyne, I think Marco Steepman because he completely bamboozled him with uh, his dancing feet. But then the the finish was. I mean, Tim Krul, as good as he's been, got nowhere near either of them strikes and. Uh, that is that is world class. You know that that term gets banded about far too easily um, in a footballing context. But that man is genuine world class, and um, he's not alone in that Man City team. So or squad. So uh, and obviously the, the manager himself slash coach, world class. So not unexpected. I was asked that. What did I think the squad? I actually said that they'd, they'd leak five um, before kickoff and enough. Um, At not least five, or exactly. I said five, yeah. I said I get beat by five, yeah. But uh, that's not really pushing pushing myself too much on the punditry stakes because it was always probably going to be. And of course, then when having already gone into the game with lads unavailable through injury and suspension, and you've got two keepers on the bench, and you can only name eight of your nine allotted. I mean, as Daniel said, you know, there's no way in those terms they were going to be competitive, which I thought was a little bit harsh because in terms of the game itself. Of course, it was what you expected. Norwich more or less having to camp in front of Tim Krul and, and fill holes and desperate defended at times. But in the main, I thought they quitted themselves reasonably well. But ultimately, not for just that game, but the whole season, they haven't had enough quality and they've been outclassed too often. And that was probably uh, quite a fitting way to bow out because that's kind of how most of that season panned out. They just simply wasn't good enough. The fifth one, uh, the, the second De Bruyne goal was... I just had the best view in the house of it. I was right behind it. The second he struck it, you knew it was hitting that far post and, and going in. And he made awesome contact with it. But it just looked so easy for him as well. Just just almost like a lazy swipe at the ball. And it absolutely flew past Krull. And you see it in the replay, Krull sort of throwing his hand up like, oh, come on, this isn't, this isn't fair. What am I supposed to do against that? But... Um, yeah, it was um, it was always a bit of a hiding to nothing situation for Norwich, wasn't it? Um, but Connor, once again, uh, a little little reminder just before we say goodbye to it of VAR. Um, you know, the, the decision was correct, wasn't it? But Norwich were back on the halfway line; they were pretty much ready to kick off again by the time it was chalked off. Yeah, um, first and foremost, I'll say it's working at home. Literally, as you press record, there someone started hoovering in my house. So uh, apologies if. <laughs> pick that up I think it's I think it should be okay um but but yeah it's uh, I, I won't be sad to see the back of it I'll be completely honest it's it's more the people using it that I have an issue with I think rather than the technology itself as has been proved this season um yeah it was it was it was probably a little bit of a harsh decision in the sense yeah it was the right decision but equally I think Steepman probably gets fouled before he plays the pass and it he doesn't really consider those things but um yeah ultimately it was, it was the right decision and that was what it was brought in to do um obviously you hope next season with with a year's sort of experience that those decisions will get quicker. Um, 
yeah, I, th- I think it, it'll be nice. And we sort of got a glimpse of it in the FA Cup tie at Preston, actually, that um, when it's not there, football seems a bit more wholesome and, and a bit more natural, I guess. And it's nice to sort of, a team to score a goal and to have that natural outpouring of emotion from supporters when they're in the grounds, as opposed to sort of everyone standing around sort of waiting for a screen to verify the decision. It sort of um, sort of dilutes it a little bit and, and perhaps it isn't as raw and, and it isn't um, the football that, that we like. But it will be nice to have a season where the goals are going to be goals if, if they're given and it will be a brief look to the linesman as as was and um, and, and that will be it. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it actually and... Um, that is, I think, probably one of the perks of the championship. There, there are many of them. It's it's a crazy league, um, but yeah, no VAR is going to be going to be lovely. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. But yeah, I think I think it, it wouldn't be the Premier League if Norwich didn't say goodbye with a with a VAR decision. So, um, and it, and it was quite a good goal from Hernandez as well, who I thought was was very lively generally on on Sunday, and has probably been one of the few shining lights to come out of uh, of Norwich City's performances um, post lockdown. So. Um, disappointing in the sense that I, I felt they kind of deserved the goal um, for, for their performance, but um, probably not too surprising given their luck and, and given their history of VAR this season. Yeah, I think he just took the shot that little bit earlier than Edison expected, didn't he? And then caught him out at his near post. He connected with it quite sweetly, but he got past Kyle Walker so easily. Like uh, I asked Daniel about O'Neill a couple of weeks ago. I think it might have been before the Watford game. And, he, he, you know, he said that, that sometimes even O'Neill doesn't know what he's going to do when he's <laughs> when he's running with the ball, does he? And that's that's partly the problem with him. But, um, yeah, that was that was a shame for him. I spoke to him after the game as well, again, in this awkward situation of being, you know, I could see him, <laughs> but I was, you know, whatever, 50 foot away from him, maybe 100 foot away from him. And we're speaking on the phone because I'm not allowed into the to the red zone and they're, they're not easy interviews but um we actually got interrupted interrupted by kevin de bruyne at one point as well who i think o'neill might know from um he had a little spell at wolfsburg didn't he because he knew tim closer before he came to norwich I, I think that may have coincided with de bruyne at wolfsburg as well but um anyway if anyone's going to interrupt your interview then kevin de bruyne's <laughs> not not a bad one um but you could tell how disappointed he was with that and 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 Although it's difficult to say after losing 5-0, they were disappointed because, of course, after that Hernandez chance, Pad, we've got to talk, talk about Timmy Pukki's lack of confidence again, haven't we? Because he definitely should have been equalising or at least making a, a better fist of it than he did. Yeah, I mean, no, I, no, not for one moment did I think he would score and that's complete contrast to if he'd have gone through and he was facing... I'll say no disrespect, but it is disrespect. I don't know, Rotherham's keeper, Wigan's keeper, whatever. Last season, <laughs> that'd have been in the back of the net. And uh, in fact, I'd say Wigan. I mean, I remember he, when Norwich took 5,000, didn't he score? Very similar, ran through um, and, and slotted. Very he composed. Finish. And uh, yeah, that is the byproduct of a man who, I mean, I've said my views. I think I fear it might be his better days are behind him. But, but even if that isn't the case, what it is, and Daniel alluded to it, um, just a, play, a player who's played so much football in a relatively short period of his career for club and country. He's been so important. Couldn't really give him a breather and looks like he's caught up with him. Um, and he's coming up against, obviously, Premier League-level defenders and defending. And, uh, you know, since since the foot injury at Leicester, December, pale imitation of what we know and, and throwing it forward, that's the thing now. And, and obviously, wrapped around that game was all the speculation beforehand about Turkey and Besiktas and, talks exploratory talks with his with his representative um 
but Daniel very very clear he, he feels he's the man who can uh, fire Norwich back to where they want to go and that's the Premier League so as far as Daniel Farker's concerned he expects Timmy Pukki to be here next season if that is the case, so they somehow, somehow, in this relatively short preseason, need to find the team who put you the championship vintage because, uh, yeah, that chance really summed up his last probably nine months. Really, that that when he's in those positions, albeit in smaller quantities than the championship, inevitably. But when he's in them, you don't really have any confidence, and he doesn't look like he's a man who's got any confidence. And uh, yeah, that. And you could see his reaction straight away. He knew massive chance. And in the context of playing Man City, you have to take that because you're not going to get too many more. Yeah, I, I mean, I've interviewed Timu quite a lot in, in the last uh, couple of years and in a variety of different locations. <laughs> Germany, uh, the James Paget Hospital in Galston in a toy room while a, a little... Uh, well, he may not have been sick, but he may have been visiting somebody. But a, a kid was like playing around while me and Chris Goring were interviewing Pookie, uh in some Scandinavian lodge at a hotel in South Norfolk. So I've, I've, I've sort of interviewed him a fair few times, and he's such a down to earth character, such a nice bloke. And last season, that came across as being ice cool, didn't it? And it was it fed into this narrative of him being um, a clinical finisher. But now that the confidence has gone and he's on this horrible streak, you know, that's 21 games he finished the season without a goal in open play. OK, there were two penalties, but no goals from open play since that Leicester game. That then that character then almost looks timid, doesn't it? So, and Connor, that, that would have been an equaliser. O'Neill would have been putting them in front. Then De Bruyne decides to score his absolute wonder goal um, just before half-time. They were in this game. They could have caused some kind of an upset. So... And Josh Martin, what about that chance at the end as well? Yeah, they, they had chances. And, and as I said in, in the previous answer, I think they were, they were probably unlucky to, to come out of that game without a goal, to be honest. And um, I think Pab was spot on in terms of their approach. I, I didn't feel like there was much more that could have been done in terms of the way they approached the game. Ultimately, it boils down to quality. Manchester City have loads. Norwich City don't have enough at this level. And um, I think that's that's probably an area that, that they're going to look to address in terms of depth and, and having a bit more strength in depth um, in, 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 in their squad. And I think it's something that's necessary when, you know, we, we all saw the bench on, on Sunday and it was, what, six uh, academy graduates on, on the bench, um, 10 in the squad in, in total. And that probably sort of sums up where they are at the moment in terms of their squad and in terms of their, their direction. So it, it does need an injection of something. But yeah, with well, the chances they had, you, you would hope, regardless of whether it's Manchester City or whether it's Rotherham, as, as, as Paddy said, that the, they would be able to, to score with the chances they created. And it's probably uh, an element of, of confidence and, and how much that has oozed away. And we can talk about how sort of free-flowing and tacking they were in, in the early phases of the season. That Chelsea game stands out to me as, as being one where they just looked like they were going to score every time that they were, that they went forward. OK, they also looked like they were going to concede every time they were defending. But that was a bit more in line with, with what they were like in the championship. And, and that sort of faded away, I think, really since probably Timu's injury. And, and there is so much responsibility on his shoulders and there is so much pressure that's put onto him to produce the goals um, for Norwich City. And I think it's just probably all taken its toll on him a little bit. And I, I kind of wonder whether the Euros being sort of pushed back a year has almost made him take his foot off the pedal a little bit because it was something he was aiming to, to get to. It was Finland's first. He, he wanted to fire them into that. And maybe the his foot has, has been taken off because now he, he knows that, that that carrot isn't there for him to perform and 
whether that's consciously or subconsciously, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's clear that he isn't the the same player that he was last season. And and I'm, I'm the same, really. When he went through, I never really had confidence that, that he was going to score. It kind of looked like he was sort of doubting himself, I guess, as to where he was going to put the ball. And in the end, he, he, he puts it straight at Edison. And um, it's almost one of those situations where a striker out of form has too much time to think about it. It's, it's one of those, isn't it? And... Um, Paddy referenced the Wigan goal. I'd reference the Millwall one. It was very similar to that, where he peeled off the defender, went through, and and, and took the goal with such confidence last season. And it looks a, a shadow of, of that player. And, and you just hope that he can find it. And he needs something to hit his knee and, and go in or something, because then I think that's when we'll see whether this is just a, a lack of concentration or confidence, rather, or whether it is a regression. And, and it is something that that is a bit more long term and, and a bit more terminal. And Let's hope that it is just confidence because clearly Norwich City are going to need him to reproduce, if not the same amount of goals, then certainly a, a better sort of um, number of goals in the championship next season. I think the thing is about selling Timu Puki is that's a striker who scored 29 goals in the championship and they're not going to find another one of those with, with their price and, and, and their financial muscle. So to me, it's it, they have to do all they can to keep him but they also have to hope that he can produce what, what he has and the best days aren't behind him. And, and I think there's there's probably going to be some inward looking of himself to make sure that's not the case. Um, but Norwich, it's, it's, Man City probably could have got more. I think I'd, I'd add that. But Norwich City were definitely unlucky to come away, I think, with with nil. Um, they, they deserved a, a goal and, and they certainly had the chances to do that. And once again, it, it boils down to, as so much of this season does, quality, I'm afraid. Yeah, Zimmerman turned that De Bruyne cross onto the uh, post, didn't he? Which, surprise, surprise, was a brilliant cross. Um, but yeah, Championship defences are going to be scared of Pookie next season. So he, at his age, you know, I know he's not ancient. He's 30, isn't he? I don't mean, he's turned 31 yet. Um, they're probably not going to get the sort of bids which are going to really tempt them into selling him as opposed to keeping hold of him and seeing whether he can rediscover his magic in, in the Championship. Because... You mentioned Millwall, but the the home game, the one that won it, the four three. You know, he knew very little about it. He was just in the right place at the right time, wasn't he? Just hung his leg out and and got a bit of luck and and was the hero. But um, that's going to be that's really interesting, striker, though, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. That's, that's the life of striker. Sometimes you you don't have to think of it, and the ball hits you and goes in, and 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 you you feel like you've got all the luck, and and you feel like the best striker in the world. And other times you try almost too hard, and and you have chances that you just yeah. you just can't score. It's um. It's it's a, a an interesting thing being a striker because you're judged purely on goals, aren't you? It doesn't matter how good you are in terms of your overall play. If you score goals, then then you're a hero. So it's it's difficult for him at the moment, and uh, all strikers go through it. And I think for him, it's it's just a case of coming out the other side with the same self belief and the same confidence in his ability that he had in the championship. And if he if he retains that, and Norwich City retain their style and have a, a squad that can create chances for him then you would back him hopefully on, on form and, and on evidence in previous seasons to, to continue scoring but um, if if he can't get a goal quickly in the championship and he can't break his duck then it's, it's going to be very very difficult I think to to see him produce the, the same level of output that we saw in the championship I think so it's uh, it's an important sort of opening 10 games for Norwich generally but also for Timu Puki I'd say. Yeah, I, I just read into the the Daniel Farker comments afterwards that I, I don't think he'd have committed quite that much if he didn't think there was a good chance of of Timo still being here next season.
Um, right, let's wrap off this uh, horrendous season, as it's turned out to be, unfortunately. You know, lowest ever points total for an Orange City team in the top flight. They set a Premier League record of only seven away goals. You know, we can just go through a load of these facts and figures. But let's try and at least have a little bit of fun. And um, To start with, player of the season voting, I think would, would either of you sort of quibble with the top three that the fans voted? Cruel first, Campbell second, Teddy third. I mean... I think Byram or Hanley probably would have been, if they'd have been able to uh, continue playing as they were, would have been in, in contention for third for me. Yeah, I mean, I'd crawl, stand out and beyond that much of a muchness, really. Yeah, I mean, team finishing that far adrift, you're not going to have too many standouts, are you? And so it's all, I mean, the ship 70 plus, um, and you keep, as your, in the end, it? you keep as your best player. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only one who got anywhere near a consistent benchmark that would have been acceptable in the Premier League for me, Tim Krull. Yeah, OK. Um, and best match, I think we can pretty much <laughs> agree on that one, can't we? Man City at home, a, a special day. I mean, uh, Connor, that was actually, uh, that was your first game with us, wasn't it? First time you were in the press box alongside me and Pad after after getting your role with the EDP and even using Pinkin, and you, you picked a decent one. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a bad first game. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Burnley away the week after, so that that was uh, that was yeah. back down to earth with a bump, I think, for everyone. But but yeah, I, I don't think there's really any competition this season, is there? Maybe maybe if I was to throw one, then then Spurs in the cup is is probably a, a second. But beyond that, I think uh, I think I'm probably struggling to to think of another one that sort of was was on the same level as as certainly Man City, but of those two generally. That's a good shout, and that. But it was a special day, and it will um, it will live a long time, certainly with me, and I'm sure everyone listening as well. Uh, right, here's a, here's a bigger one to get your teeth into. Then worst match. There are quite a few contenders here. Um, I'm I'm a bit torn, but I'm going to go for Southampton at home. The first game after the restart, just because the second half was such a surrender and was so damaging to what then followed. They, their survival hopes basically were killed with the way they performed. It was only 1-0 at half-time, I, I think, if I'm remembering that rightly. It wasn't, might have even been nil-nil. Let me just uh, double-check that. But um, that, as a, as a performance, was, was just so flat. And, uh, you know, we'd gone into that. There were six points adrift. Everyone was talking about how important the home games were. They got the home games up first. Oh, it was nil nil at half time. Sorry, Ings scored four minutes after after half time. Um, so that's that second half just killed everything, didn't it? And ever since, it's been it's been miserable. Um, bad worst worst of the season for you? Yeah, that's a good shot, Southampton. But I'm going to go uh, right and away. Start of November. That was pretty <laughs> dispiriting. For us, because we got absolutely deluged walking from the, the station. It was only about three-minute walk, but we were absolutely drowned as rats. And then <laughs> that set the tone because they got beat 2-0. But it was the manner of it. They were not the races, and Brian could have won far more comfortably that day. I think Tete had to go in at centre-back or had to go started centre-back. I can't think off the top of my head. Or ended up, ended up switching to centre-back. But either way, Connolly and uh, Malpai were just too hot for them. And, and in the sense that... You looked at Brighton and you thought, well, these are the sort of teams where Norwich, if they're going to do anything this season, need to probably get a result. Uh, and even a draw wouldn't have been a bad result. But they were so far short of what was required. And then you probably began to feel that um, this isn't going to go how we hoped it would. And then the following week, actually, they had Watford at home. That was the Buendia giving it to Gerard Delafeo within about three minutes. Lost that game 2-0. So I think those two together, 
in a space of about six days in November, probably just underlined that Norwich weren't going to have enough about them to, to make it a fair fight. So, um, yeah, I found those two pretty dispiriting. But I wouldn't disagree, to be fair with you, dear. Southampton was a pretty big moment. But, um, but Brighton away, still drying out. Yeah, and Connor will remember that I got into an argument with a steward after the game who interrupted my uh, my video verdict. Which yes, yeah, so it's, it's probably a good job we're not going back there next season. I don't, I'm not sure you'd be uh, you'd be let in. You know, I, I don't like that place. Uh, ever since the five uh, 0 under Alex Neal, when Russell Martin came out and gave that uh, sort of almost tearful, passionate. Um, speech straight out of the dressing room, still adrenaline pumping because he was so embarrassed and angry about it. That was a, that was a grim day, I can assure you. But um, as I say, plenty of contenders. Connor, which uh, takes worst match for you? Yeah, I think Southampton for me. Although, uh, yeah, that, the memories of that Brighton game is uh, is quite something. I don't, I don't I don't think those trousers that I wore that day are dry now, let alone. Uh, <laughs> and that's that's however many months afterwards it was. Yeah, it was that bad. Um, although Norwich did hit the bar that day, which is probably closer than they've got in in some away games this season. So um, that's probably why Southampton pips it to me. I think. Um, yeah. So Steve hit the bar. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it was a curling effort, I think, from memory. Fairly early on as well, I think. Which yeah, I think it was uh, um, uh, A false sense of hope. But yeah, that Southampton one for me, so much hope and expectation that it could be different. Talk of the sort of nine-game playoff and yeah, it all fell uh, sort of flat on its face and um, and that sort of set the tone for the restart, didn't it? It, it kind of felt like after that and, and the Everton game that um, the players had almost accepted their fate to, to some extent, and uh, yeah, that that for me is is it. I think because of how much excitement there was from everyone, and football was was meant to lift everyone's mood, wasn't it? And it was its return, and it was um, it was going to be different, and and it turned out actually to to be a lot worse than than what we had before. And and also, I I just chuck in because of the fact there's there's no supporters there as well. I think the experience generally behind closed doors isn't isn't particularly uh, isn't particularly great. So. Yeah, Southampton for me, but yeah, honourable mentions for Brighton and, and Watford and also probably the, the Burnley game that we had fairly recently at Carrow Road as well. I think they're the, they're the ones I'd chuck in. I am sick of behind closed doors football, but mm. obviously we have a far more serious situation um, and we have to be dictated by the, the national health needs rather than football. That's what's far more important, but uh, let's hope we can get back to normal life at some point next season, because that's not even looking certain yet, is it? You know, I know that they're talking about potential for fan, some fans being back in, in grounds early stages of the season, but um, getting back to proper normality still feels a way off. Right, um, best moment and worst moment. Um, let's let's um, leave the final whistle against Man City aside, because I think that, that's kind of um, obvious, isn't it? That was that, that roar was um, was special. But I'll, I'll throw in uh, a little bit of a um, of a left field one, uh, which was Adam Eder scoring almost straight away at Preston in the FA Cup, um, sent through by Stephen and wasn't he tucked it away? Lovely, lovely goal, and it, partly because there was no VAR, so we were like, oh, it's definitely a goal. <laughs> the referee's blown his whistle. <laughs> we're, we're cracking on, but just. You know, none of us were really expecting him to start that game, and then within minutes he'd scored. So that was um, that was a quite exciting um, moment, and um, which of course got even better when he when he completed his hat trick. Um, Pad best moment? Yeah, well, I mean, if we're going to ring fence Man City and come up with an alternative, I'm actually going to go before a ball was kicked this season, which was Anfield about five minutes to kick off. You'll never walk alone, ringing round, um, which might seem like a Liverpool centred view, but just. 
the fact that Norwich were in that environment. It was the first game since they'd won the European Cup. Norwich's first game back in the Premier League to take Connors Point. Packed house at Anfield. Bloody lovely splashes of yellow to the left of where we sat. Red all the way around the ground. Just phenomenal experience. And that was... This was what everything they did in the intervening nine, ten months was leading up to, was this moment that both sets of players emerge into this cauldron. Global television and audience, let's not forget the very first game of the Premier League season, Friday night, monster, monster global audience. Tens and tens and tens, probably even hundreds of millions watching that game. And for Norwich, little old Norwich to be part of that was quite special. And just that anthem ringing around, um, yeah, that was hairs on the back of the neck. And sadly, it went south pretty rapidly. And by half time, they were well out of the game. But yeah, that was the moment really when you thought, well, yeah, whether you're a fan, whether you're a player, head coach, whether it's just in the media, and you're going to some of these more modest outposts in the championship on a Tuesday night, miles away from Nor- Norwich and Norfolk, that's what it's all about, is to try and be part of this circus and sadly uh, fleeting fleeting on this occasion. But uh, yeah, if I'm not looking beyond Man City, I'd go Anfield just before kickoff, I think. Yeah, that was epic. It was the first time I've been to Anfield as well. So that the experience of of that noise was um, was pretty special. Uh, Connor, what about you? Um, I, I'm going to give a, a mention to Everton away, which was obviously the the only away win this season uh, in the league. That was that was um, that was decent. Dennis Trebeni scored as well, which was uh, <laughs> probably a little bit of a surprise for everyone. Although he's done very very well in the Bundesliga, um, but I, I think. If we're not saying Manchester City, then for me it has to be that Tottenham FA Cup. So I think, I think from memory, that's unless I'm missing anything, that's the first penalty shootout I've seen live as well. Um, and it, it was just uh, with the the nine thousand Norwich fans in what is such a wonderful stadium. Um, the occasion of it was was excellent, and for me that's that's kind of where the the FA Cup uh, went because that that quarter final didn't feel like an FA Cup quarter final at Carrow Road, and it's almost it it wasn't it was a shell of what it would have been if. Uh, if all the Norwich fans and Manchester United fans would have been in the stadium, um, yeah, for me that that Spurs game was 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 a very special night, and um, that rule when when Tim Krul saved that final penalty from that away end was excellent, and also the sea of the the players running over to it and, and sharing the moment with that with those supporters was was very good as well, um, and and the game as well I thought generally was 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 pretty good in terms of Norwich's perspective and scoring the equaliser and it was probably the only time they've come from behind this season in not okay they didn't win the game outright but at least to, to walk away through to the next round that was that was very good and again to do it in that stadium was um in front of 9000 Norwich fans was really special so that that's the one i think that that um I'll, I'll take away from this season but uh yeah that that day at Goodison Park wasn't too bad either to um talk about the blue side and mersey side for a second um purely because Norwich won but i think at the time it also kind of felt like they found their way again. I remember yeah. Kane McLean was playing as a number ten, and they used him slightly differently and got so a lot of joy. Back. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I think the reality of it probably was that Everton were very poor. And uh, I remember that. Uh, I don't know if either of you were in the press box after. It might have been long after you. Yeah, I think Pad had gone to Daniel Farker's press conference, and, you, and you'd gone to the mix zone. But there was a, a scouse lad shouting at um, Bill Kemwright uh, about Marco Silva at the time, which was. Yeah. Quite amusing. Um, I think it was the worst manager we've ever had. He's got a sack him or something along those lines, but it was, it was quite amusing anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I'd give an honourable mention to Everton, but but that Tottenham game for me, if we if we're not allowed Manchester City, I think probably is is my highlight. Yeah, the mix zone after that game was buzzing. Byron played at left back because Lewis was injured, hadn't he? Um, I remember Stuart Webber 
coming through uh, carrying some of the stuff with the kit men and stuff because he was so buzzing about the day that he decided to get stuck in and, and help load up the coach. <laughs> I think we spoke to um, spoke to two or three players after it. You know, they, they thought that they were really onto it. And as we, I think we said in last week's pod after the Burnley game, that that December was where um, where they should have been making this a very different season, shouldn't they? But uh, let's not go back over that. You mentioned Dennis Strabeni. Um, scored as many top flight goals a season as Todd Campbell, who's of course now being linked with lots of big name clubs. And I just pulled up the other players that he scored as many top flight goals as this season. Uh, David Silva, James Madison, uh, Lise Mousset, Ollie McBurney is, oh no, he scored more than Ismail Assar, who was, who was worth 30 million or Watford paid 30 million for him. So, um, who knows? Maybe in a, in a parallel universe, things could, could and should have worked out differently for Dennis. Um, right, worst moment then for me, it, the standout moment was the the Watford game. First two minutes, Godfrey charges out of position. Buendia stupidly loses possession. They concede an early goal. Absolutely kills the Carrot atmosphere. That was a massive, massive game at that time when they were just sort of showing a bit bit of life. If they'd have won that game. You know, the things could have looked very different, but I think for a lot of Norwich fans I've heard go back to that night and sort of cite that as that was the night that they thought we're in trouble here. This is gonna, this could well be a, a relegation season. So that silly Buendia flick um, is is one that stands out in my mind as as the worst. Um, Connor, I'll come to you on this one. Yeah, I think I'd probably be inclined to agree. Um, the only thing I would throw in is. Um, the series of away games after Burnley. So I'm probably picking a few moments here in terms of um, just those, those two nil defeats where they they didn't really offer too much. Um, yeah, but I, I think that that Buendia flick it probably stands out in my mind. Also, um, a hard, well, the first ten minutes against Sheffield United in December when uh, when Sheffield United basically just just up their levels and, and scored two goals. But that Buendia flick, yeah, that stands out to me as as probably the moment that. Um, certainly in my mind, at least, the, the season turned a little bit from from positivity, I think, to, to perhaps a bit of negativity. And it, it almost woke people up, I think, to the, the scale of the task. Um, and yeah, it, it never really recovered from there, I don't think, um, in terms of momentum and confidence and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'd probably be inclined to agree with you there. Pad? Yeah, well, I mean, on 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 that theme, I, I mean, you sort of said Watford, that was early November. My mind was went to probably bookending that definitive spell, which was Palace, New Year's Day, Carrow Road, oh, 84, 84 minutes on the clock, Norwich 1-0 up, Connor Wickham, he, formerly of the parish across the border, uh, scrambles in, I think it had to be VAR checked, but it was, I think yeah. Zimmerman had just played him on side, hadn't he? Um, and you just think, given the chances they'd spurned in the intervening months, uh, if they'd have got the win there, turning for home then, 2020, you bounce into it, and who knows then, as it was, I think they only won another two league games. So, yeah, I, I think any any period from Watford to Palace, I think you could look at that. And there were so many moments that could have been different if, if they somehow or other just managed to get their noses over the line in a lot of games where they were leading. And, and that, for me, was the one, I think, because, um, you know, Palace then might have got sucked back down into it and Norwich would have had another two points on the board. And, and it's just a feel-good. It's not so much... One particular game or one result, but the, the feeling that around the place and that just might have given everybody a boost, a bit of extra belief. 
of course, I think the following week they go to Preston, they do what they do there, and then you're bouncing into January rather than fearing that you're already too far adrift. So, yeah, because they got so close that night, I think, as I say, six minutes from time, what a win would have done from, we'll never know. But, yeah, that would be one of my uh, most heart-rendering moments of the season, I think. Yeah, when uh, in real time, we all thought Wickham was offside, didn't we? And then as soon as we saw that first VAR replay, everyone was like, oh, no, here we go. Because, of course, the game before that, was the hooky bar decision, wasn't it? That it would have been 2-0 up against Spurs. They were playing well. And that wonderful pass from Mario Vrancic gets overruled by the most marginal. You know, you look at, okay, Onel Hernandez, in traditional terms, pre-VAR, that Onel Hernandez decision on Sunday is kind of a marginal offside, but it is correct. But Pookie's is far, far more marginal than that was. I mean, to the point where there was actually even debate as to whether it had been 100% proved by the technology as to whether it was offside, hadn't it? So that could probably be one of the contenders there. Right, let's just finish on two positives. Uh, we'll quickly go through these. Best goal and best save. Uh, best save for me is, uh, I've already put that out there because I did a story. Uh, I went for the um, Harry Maguire header in the FA Cup quarterfinal, which, cruel, it was almost Gordon Banks-esque, wasn't it, in the way it was almost behind him and uh, almost on his line, managed to pull it against the post. Um, and best goal, I've, I've gone for Jamal Lewis against Leicester. Um, I think partly because of our view of it in the press box as well. Just as soon as he struck it, you could see the way the ball was bending from from out to in. And that was uh, that was a lovely goal and a winner as well, <laughs> which we didn't get many of. Uh, Pad, what are your two nominations? Yeah, best save at United, but the league game down here and the one from Anthony Martial where he's just contorted his body close range and... It's just how how has he had the agility because he couldn't have had huge amounts of time to to to, to adjust his body to make that save and you know as you did that piece the other day there was quite a few contenders and goes back to what we said at the outset why he's the head and shoulders the best player for Norwich this season so that that was my best save best goal um, not in terms of absolute Kevin De Bruyne esque world class finishing but because of what it meant it's got to be Kenny McLean soaring like a salmon to head Emmy <laughs> Wendy's to set them on their way against Man City, just because that was like David landing a punch on Goliath. That that was my God. They've scored. They've only had the impudence to score against this team. Could could they actually do something in this game? And as we know, that was the start of well, an absolutely epic signature performance in the Premier League. And uh, yeah, so I would go for that one because it was just a and a brilliant, brilliantly executed goal. And we've we've spent so much time analysing what they don't do from set pieces, but that just sort of maybe showed that they they. They were underutilising what they could have offered in an offensive set piece manner as well, you know, with likes of McLean and when they had fit centre backs that they really didn't do enough attacking set set pieces as well. But on that occasion, they most certainly did. Brilliant goal. That was a Buendia corner, wasn't it? And when you think back to when Duda came in in January, he did pretty much take over set pieces, didn't he? And I think it was pretty categorically proven that Emmy Buendia is better and Kenny McLean as well, both better at delivering set pieces than Duda was. Um, he already seems a bit like ancient history, doesn't he? <laughs> and Connor, finally, your your two nominations. Yeah, I think I think my save is the same as um, Paddy's. Are you thinking the Martial one? Was it from a corner and it got sort of flipped back? Yeah, yeah, yeah flipped it on. Yeah, that was that was a, a ridiculous save. But there's been there's been as you know as you, as your piece detail. There's been so many this season where you've just sort of thought, how's he kept that out? And that's why he's he's player of the season. So uh, yeah, I'll go for that Manchester United one if if you uh, if you're asking me to single one out. Uh, the goal I would probably go for the uh, Campwell's goal against Man City. I think in terms of 
just in terms of how they try to play and how they bypass the press and, and work the ball up the pitch. I mean, it was essentially a pass from, I think it was a, a throw-in in the right-back position to Campbell putting it in the net. It was such a well-worked goal. Um, and in terms of aesthetic and in terms of their style, it, it was kind of, at that point, felt, OK, this style can work in the Premier League and it can work against the the bigger sides and, and one of the best sides. And uh, ultimately, obviously, we, we haven't seen that subsequently. But for me, that, that felt like... Um, it was just a, a really good goal firstly, but again, it, it kind of felt like it justified them playing the way that they were trying to play. Um, and, you know, as, as Pad said about Anfield and, and what that did, it, it kind of felt like it they'd arrived onto the Premier League, I think, with that goal. Because I think uh, as as good as the header from a, a, the corner was from, from McLean, it, it was kind of a bit of sort of, FA Cuppy, I guess, in terms of it, it's kind of a, a lower side landing a punch, isn't it? But can they sustain it? And, and when, actually, when they scored the second goal, it was doing it in their own way and in their own style and um, by keeping the ball on the floor and moving it sort of with, with limited touches and getting themselves up the pitch. So for me, that that was probably my highlight, yeah. But Lewis, I think in terms of sort of visual and, and the view we had, we'd probably take that one because the way he sort of cut across the ball for that that goal against Leicester was was superb, actually. And, um, yeah, as, as you said, Dave, we, we probably had the best view of it in, in the press box as well. He saw it from the moment he left his boot. It was only going one place when, when he angled it in the bottom corner. So, uh, yeah, I'll give an honourable mention to Jamal Lewis's strike. But, yeah, for me, it's that second goal against Manchester City. And I like that Max Ahrens was claiming the assist for that goal as well afterwards for the uh, <laughs> overhit cross that Jamal uh, controlled on the far side of the box. But um, that Todd one, yeah, Steeperman and Buendia against Man City, they'd started the move and they got Pookie away. And that was where that was the Wolverine celebration, wasn't it? It felt, felt like that was the moment that he arrived. I think that was the night that Chris Sutton christened him the Deerham Deco and that sort of stuck for most of the season. So... Despite all of the dross that we have seen, and there have been some consistent low spells, there, there were some enjoyable parts along the way. And uh, I think everyone's just um, everyone's just ready for the next phase of this project, aren't they, under Stuart Weber and Daniel Farker, to see where things go. So I think we should turn our attentions to that. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Since we've last recorded, uh, I think that's four, four signings and probably a fifth uh, due fairly swiftly as well. So Blahata, Sorensen, Mumba and Soto all unveiled since the Burnley game, haven't they? Um, and and Paddy's the, who's the one that sort of stands out for you, the one who uh, is most likely to be having a, an impact? I mean, the business isn't done yet, obviously, so it's a theoretical question, but which one sort of do, you, do you like the look of most? Well, I think the one who's probably, cl- at this stage, uh, closest to the first team at 11 is probably Poheta. And, you know, obviously he's the one they've spent the most money on, um, so that's probably stating the obvious. But, it does look like he's got something they don't really possess, even with Onel Hernandez, in terms of... But the only caveat I have with that is that he looks like a player who might have been able to change the dynamic in the Premier League, because ultimately, I think, where his greatest asset would have seemed, looking at the showreel, is counter-attacking teams. And I think in the Championship, more often than not, you'd expect Norwich to dominate the ball. So I'm not quite sure how, he, how you fit him into that dynamic at the moment. But certainly, there's no doubt that he does give them as Daniel said, a different dimension. Um, and maybe hints with Sonani coming in as well that 
well, I mean, more than hints, because Daniel when pressed on it on Friday before the trip to Man City. He said they felt they lacked pace and they lacked physicality in central areas, hence why Sorensen's also come in the building. So if that is the case, that to me is quite positive that, that it isn't going to be the, because that's the stick that occasionally is, more than occasionally is beaten with, that he's just setting his ways and it's where's the plan B, where's the plan C, where, well, maybe we're starting to see evidence that, um, in his mind at least, he now needs to translate that into putting a team out in the park in the championship. But maybe there is going to be a bit more devil to sort of how Norwich set about the task and uh, they need to because if they're too predictable and, and too heavily reliant on dominating possession and good technical midfield players and building the play, then you know time will have moved on. You know The Norwich, who won the 18-19 championship season, are not going to win the 2021. They need to reinvent themselves a degree. And I think this sign in particularly for me is a signal that's probably what they're looking to do so of course as Daniel said you know he's come from the Polish league as Sorensen has come from the Danish league it is a different challenge ahead and and how quickly they those lads can adapt particularly will dictate how much of a leading role they've got but certainly 22 years of age he's got it all in front of him and if Daniel can extract his, his raw assets I think we could have a player on our hands there yeah definitely you know, Sam McCallum and Melvin City obviously coming in as well, aren't they? So that, there's already quite a bit of movement. Stuart Webb has been been busy already. Um, it sounds like Matthew Dennis, who was with Arsenal, he, he's probably going to end up being confirmed fairly soon as well. Uh, young midfielder. Um, but Connor, um, Mumbler and Soto, I mean, you know, you've been uh, generally sorting our sort of profile pieces on on these guys. I mean, Mumbler in particular is one that you... Um, you did quite a bit of digging on, didn't you? Um, what do you, what do you sort of see them slotting in? Mum, Mumba's a really interesting one because he has been developed at Sunderland as a central midfielder, and um, it's it's clear from the release that Norwich have have put out, and from Daniel Farker's quotes that, that they see him as a, a fullback option, specifically a right back option. Um, for me, it's it's probably less about him and more what it means for the right back position going forward they've obviously got Max Aarons and, and Sam Byron there already and Mumba's only 18 so there's a, there's a case that possibly a, a season in the 23s but then he, he sort of spent last year out, or the second half of last season out on loan at South Shields who are I think a Northern Premier League side um, because essentially he was playing in Sunderland's on the 23 side who aren't particularly very good um, so he, he basically forced the issue upon himself so I, I don't really see him joining a side where he's, he's perhaps going to be playing development football um, and it, for all extents and, and purposes it feels like he's, he's going to be a first team addition so the wider question for me and the, is, is probably what does it mean about the right back position and what does it mean more so with, about Max Ahrens and um, we've, we've kind of seen the, the Bayern Munich rumours I think if, if you were to push me and say which player do you think is, is probably best suited to the Premier League at the moment I'd probably say Max Ahrens in, in response to any of those young players um, I think he's, he's probably the most assured but yeah, back back to Mumba. I mean, eighteen years of age. Was he five foot three? So he's he's not particularly tall. He's um, a, a, a really young player. Captain Sunderland when he was sixteen. John O'Shea um, almost gave him the gesture, or gave him the armband as as a gesture to sort of um, start the changing era, I guess, to start a new era at Sunderland. Stuart Donald obviously went in, and once they got relegated, I think they beat Wolves on the on the final day um, as Wolves were going up and they were going down. Um, and so he, he captained them. I think he started in, in, the, in their first game in League One as well against Charlton, um, but sort of fell out of favour. I think Lee Catamol had, had quite a good season last year and, and just got kept out of the midfield slot, which was where they saw him. But I think most of all, there seemed to be some debate, and I've spoken to um, Phil Smith, who is uh, 
a Sunderland reporter, and he, he essentially said to me they they couldn't really work out his best position, and they kind of had too many central midfielders or experienced midfielders, Lee Catamol, Max Power, to name a few, and then Luke O'Noin, who they bought as a midfielder, played as a right back, so that kind of kept him out of the right back slot, and he kind of found himself in the background a little bit, but. Um, they are their supporters are, are furious to be honest that, that he's been able to sign for Norwich they've, they've kind of seen it with Joel Osoro who, who signed for Swansea a couple of seasons ago and most recently and, and probably more painfully for anyone that's watched the the Netflix series is, is Josh Madger who uh, who went to Bordeaux um, and it, it kind of I guess that they're in a they're in a bad state at the moment in terms of ownership and in terms of their their demise a little bit but their academy has sort of almost been a, a bright spot and he was he was going to he was essentially meant to be the poster boy for this new era and he's he's departed um he's departed for a fee that that they consider um fairly modest um so it's it's an interesting well it's a very Norwich City signing a, a player 18 years of age that they feel they can develop and improve on um interesting that they've committed him to the right back position I think straight off the bat that's probably given him some assurance as well considering he's perhaps had to learn two positions rather than one and he's now coming into a club being told what position he plays and probably having a pathway spelled out to him as well. So um, he's he's interesting. And then, yeah, Sebastian Soto, American forward, probably not one we expect for the first team. He's um, already trialling with uh, Telstar, who Charlie Gilmore, who uh, Norwich signed from Arsenal last summer, spent last season with. I think he had a very productive year with them, played a, a vast majority of their games, if not all of them, um, with a view to, to joining them on loan. So, um, there's been some work permit issues. He was due to play for the US national team before uh, lockdown, I believe, against the Netherlands and Wales. Um, but because those games didn't happen, he's, he's not eligible for a work permit. So Norwich have had to um, sort out a loan move. They, he's, go, he's gone to Holland. He's previously played for Hanover, made his debut against Wolfsburg, scored a goal in the Bundesliga. So has tremendous pedigree. He's only 20. Um, clearly, they, they feel there's a player there and... Um, and you have to be inclined to agree looking at, at the pedigree, but I just wonder how beneficial a loan spell to the, the Dutch second tier is at, at this stage in his career when, when he's probably had a year being fairly prolific in, in Hanover's under-19s. So um, that's going to be one to, to watch with interest, I think, him and, and, and how he develops. But for me, probably more a player if Norwich fails to get promotion and, and they find themselves back in the championship next year. But um, we shall see on both of those two. I think both fit the model, don't they, in terms of age and, and, and in terms of characters, they're, they're two very Stuart Webber signings in sort of untapped potential, I guess. And um, it'll be interesting to see how they develop. But yeah, I would imagine Mumba will we'll probably see more of than, than, than Soto for, uh, for the season that, 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 that's coming up. And Jamal Lewis and Max Ahrens were both wingers when they were first in. I remember watching an FA Youth Cup game at Manchester City uh, when Jamal was the best player for Norwich. Um, they uh, missed Todd Campbell that day, actually. They... Were, that was was that quarter final? I can't remember now to be perfectly honest. But um, yeah, Jamal was, Max was, and of course Ben Godfrey. You know his position. So I suppose it's the right age to be changing someone's position, isn't it? Um, so, so the thing that stood out for me as well was that the Under Twenty World Cup last summer, only Erling Haaland scored more goals than him, who of course is now worth what. 150 million or something for Dortmund. He's been tearing it up in the Champions League, isn't he? He's, well, basically a superstar already. He's been, uh, he, he's got an incredible record. He scored nine goals in one game in that tournament, and uh, that's how he got the golden boot. But Soto scored four goals, um, along with uh, three other players. So that's all going to be interesting. But I suppose a big part of all this as well, Pat, is who goes out. And 
just while you were giving your answer a minute ago, talking about Norwich being, you know, um, dominant again, and that they'll be looking to be the protagonists, I suppose, as Daniel would, would put it, and they want to be dominating the ball. Mo Leitner, of course, has sort of been in the background of all this, and, and it doesn't seem possible that he could come back into it. But I mean, if you want someone who's going to dominate the ball in the championship, you've got a proven championship title winner there, but doesn't seem likely that they're going to be able to kiss and make up to that sort of extent, does it? No, and you probably would for slightly different reasons, but Tom Tribal would be in the same category. A guy who has those type of attributes, not quite like for like with Leitner, but not dissimilar, hugely, same area of the pitch. Uh, he likes to manipulate the ball and and he wasn't really a, a staple um, over the entire piece in the Premier League. And I just think Sorensen coming in now is maybe a signal that they want to shake up that area of the pitch. Melbourne City, of course, as well. But again, with the same caveat, he's a very young man. Um, how close he will be to the first the start of the season is probably to be decided. But I think I think there's a sense that, and you wrap around the Stuart Weber comments, that, that there are players there who they feel, as in Weber and Farker, that the journey's at an end and thanks for everything you've done, but we're going to move you on. And I think even he added that they would look to do that quite swiftly. So if that is the case, and that's Stuart Webber mapping it out, then what players is he referring to? Well, for me, they would be two at the top of the list, I think. Um, I think Steeperman has been used enough post-Southampton to suggest that he still he still is in Farker's plans. Vrancic as well. We know what he can offer in the Championship if you keep him fit. Um, but I would, if I was Leitner and Tribal, I'd be fearing that they, they probably aren't going to be on the next leg of the journey. Yeah, which would kind of be a shame. Somebody that we haven't really spoken about much as well, I'm just thinking while you're saying that, Louis Thompson is technically back coming back in and I think he's still got three years on his contract off the top of my head as well because he signed a he signed a new one mid-season last season even though he had his injury problems he he is a player that, that they like isn't he and you know we've all talked about him being the potential Teddy successor could you see a way back for him it's hard now it's hard just because of the, I mean Farco loves him he really does like the fella on, on a personal level and, and there's somebody around the group but the the body of injuries he's had now I think with the greatest respect, probably lower leagues in the football league you're looking at now. I don't think you could expect him to come in now and be spearheading a, a team going for the for the promotion to the Premier League. So I think that ship's probably sailed. That, that, I always thought that was quite a strange contractual move anyway to to, uh, to give him a new extended deal when they did. But as I say, if that emanates from it, he's one of the good guys around the group, then maybe there was an element of that. But in terms of his football inability now, I think I think that ship has sailed. And again, you don't go out and bring Sorensen in if you think Louis Thompson's the answer, do you? So, um, mm. and, and obviously Morris, well, Morris, he only had another year left. Um, so him going to MK Dons to me is effectively goodbye Carl Morris. He clearly isn't in the plans. Um, and this time next summer, he will no longer be an Orange player. So uh, I would be surprised if Louis Thompson doesn't end up back at MK. I think with Russell Martin there, it's an obvious one. He was there back end of last season. So, yeah, I, I, I don't for one minute think Louis Thompson features in their championship plans. Mm, maybe he just fancies coming back for pre-season and trying to force his way in. But um, I think that the problem, a big problem has been in the background is that Norwich have got quite a few players with injury problems on their record, haven't they? You know, Leitner and Tribal are are two of those. You now have got to say that Hanley, Close, and Zimmerman all are as well. And just finally then, uh, chaps, I suppose the, the big lessons that we take from this season in, into next season, quite, quite a broad question. But for me, it, it has got to be the defence. Um, if there is one place that they're going to spend a bit of money, you know, a decent fee, 
I would be most happy to see it be at centre back. Um, we saw Akin Fanawo come off the bench on Sunday, so you know it looks like he might be in and in and around it. But I don't, I, at this stage, it seems unlikely that he's ne- going to play a, a major part. But then you know Godfrey emerged during the title-winning season, and you see you don't know. But I think another body is is needed in there. Whether you're going to play four or three at the back, if you're going to play three at the back, then you need another another one at least in the squad because. For me, Hamley, Closer, Godfrey um, and Zimmerman are all clearly good enough for the championship. But the problem, well, A, Godfrey, we'll have to see whether he stays or whether anyone comes in with a big bid. Um, clearly an ambitious young man. He captained the England under-21s this season. The other three, as long as they're fit, that's fine. But I feel like their fitness issues mean that, for me, a big focus has got to be on trying to build a more solid defensive foundation if you're gonna come back if they're gonna pull off what seems unlikely as we sit here at the moment and and bounce back to the Premier League it can't be conceding whatever it was over 50 was it 57 goals on on the way to the title as, as exciting as it was and as swashbuckling and as a brilliant season as it was it's turned out that then trying to establish establish yourself in the Premier League without a solid defensive base is incredibly difficult. So for me, that's that's going to be sort of where my attention will remain a lot, it's even in the first half of next season before we even start thinking about promotion or playoffs or you know best case scenario. It's whether they can be more solid and whether they can uh, repel the opposition a bit more because I just don't think we've seen enough of that under Daniel Farker. Um, Connor, um, what's the big your big takeaway from this season? Probably the importance of, of the midfield. I think that, that probably sums it up. I think there's only been a few occasions this year where I've, I've looked at Norwich City in midfield and thought, yeah, they looked they looked pretty balanced. And um, even even when they reverted to Tetti and McLean and looked a bit more solid, I think they, they probably lacked a, a number 10 with sufficient quality. Um, I think they I think they've, they've probably realised inside the club that actually you don't win any prizes for, for being loyal and you can be as loyal as you want, but if the quality isn't there, then then ultimately it, you're not going to progress the club. So um, I, I think those are, are probably my, my two takeaways. It's not really surprised me. I mean, we, we've spoken about Tribal and Lightner there. It doesn't really surprise me that that's an area of, of concern and we can talk about the defence. And I mean, we individually, you, you listed it there. I think they've got, fairly competent players at championship level. I think for me, the issue is, is probably how you protect them and, uh, and um, improve the defensive structure as a whole. And, and I think a lot of that for me stems from, from midfield and, and getting better, more physical options in there because frankly, to, to be relying on, on Alex Tetti at, at the stage, as good of a player as he is, but at the stage of his career he is, and for as long as they have, um, is, is, um, is, is not particularly great. And, and when they talk about sort of mid to long-term plans and aspirations, regardless of how important Alex Tetti is now, that he's not going to figure long-term because of his age and, and, and his fitness. And I think he's even indicated, as, as he tends to, once he signs a new contract, that this will be his last. And I, I kind of get a sense that he means it this time. Um, so they, they, for me, the lesson needs to be the midfield set up, how they improve that, and equally how they get to a point where you don't almost sort of fear for them a little bit when Alex Tetti isn't in the starting lineup. Um so that, that for me has to be the lessons they learn. I think defensive solidity definitely and, and also loyalty as well, just because uh, a player's done wonderful things for you in the past doesn't mean that they, they're necessarily going to do that again. So um, I think they, they, 
and we we associate Stuart Webber with ruthlessness, and that, again, I think he's he's probably learned these these lessons himself. But um, I, I think they they probably need to be a bit more ruthless with their squad if, if uh, next season if if a player isn't performing, perhaps rather than than persisting and trying to almost put themselves above the parapet and and thinking that they're an, an exception because they've shown a bit more loyalty. Because ultimately, it doesn't doesn't get you anywhere in football. So I think that those for me are the lessons that need to be learned and. Um, I think uh, it's just to look ahead to next season, that opening period is going to be crucial because they are going to have expectation and, and they are going to have a bit of pressure on their shoulders. So if they don't come out of the blocks, then OK, supporters may or may not be there, but those questions are, are, going, to, are going to remain. So that they've got to learn those lessons and they've got to learn them swiftly. And that opening period is probably going to be behind closed doors. And the final word, Mr Dabbitt, your big takeaway from the season. Well, on a broader point, you boys obviously drilled down into specific aspects of whether it's defensively or midfield or loyalty but I think recruitment was horrendous this season everybody agrees even Stuart Webber would tell you and has done they got that badly wrong so this window we're going into now start officially opened on Monday and it's not just recruitment in they've obviously made a lot of inroads in that area but out as well because there's no point in um, you know saying that we don't need to sell run it and then we get towards the end of this window and then some of the crown jewels depart and they don't have plans in place to replace those characters. So recruitment, that will hold the key. And then the second thing is, is Daniel Farker, his ability to, and he's talked about it already, the, the mindset to switch the mentality from getting used to and almost expecting to lose games on a weekly basis to what they had when they when they won the title, which was, you know, they went out there and they were never beaten and they went right to the end and they ground teams down and, and it was a collective and an individual mindset and that sprung from the head coach. Um, and momentum uh, and confidence. Everything that we've talked about earlier on today about what Timu Puki is lacking across the whole squad, Daniel needs to somehow, and I don't know how, how he, he quite goes about that over this abbreviated pre-season, but he needs to almost turn the page and, and mentally get into the minds and get into the heads of these players who are still going to be here that they are, as Conor Riley says, expected to be challenged at the right end. Can they flick that switch? Because the the success or failure of how quickly they're able to do that probably hinges on Daniel's future and also where Norwich go next season, I think. There we go. Right. Thanks, chaps. I feel like we've drilled down into it um, quite a bit there. Um, thank you very much for listening. Of course, it's been a, a weird and, and long season, but we've put out a lot of pods and videos across uh, across what has basically been a year. Um, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, then, then please do. And, and likewise, the Pinkin YouTube channel, there's always loads of videos going on there. Pinkin.com is, is, of course, the place to, to go for all the latest Norwich City news and analysis, um, such as the uh, sex things, which was on uh, Pinkin.com <laughs> this morning, thanks to an unfortunate headline error, which was swiftly corrected, which was, of course, supposed to be six things which um, I'm sure you're used to that format from, uh, we've been doing that for a few years. Um, but, you know, sex sells, so um, it, it's performed well online, so we're happy. Um, otherwise, um, yeah, thank you very much for this. Uh, the pod, we will probably uh, continue between here and, and the start of next season. Uh, there will be pods, although the timing of it might vary a little bit. We'll probably judge it on, on what's going on, really, between now and the, the start of the season. But we'll, we'll keep the podcast coming your way. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the break. And uh, let's, uh, let's start looking into the future.